This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello and welcome to the Territory Story Podcast. My name's Leon Logan-Nathan. With me, my co-host, Mr. Peter Gowers. Hello, Leon. It's always special to spend time with you on these podcasts, my friend. <laughs> it's like Laurel and Hardy, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Some might say dumb and dumber, but I won't go there. <laughs> well, mate, uh, you know, we flip around with our uh, with our guests and we, you know, we have a really strong and loyal following, I have to say, based on what I see in the numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, based on the complaints. Uh, and uh, you know it's really interesting doing this podcast now we're up to you know episode 200 and whatever um how we fall into our own bubbles that that we we don't even realize and one of the bubbles that you and i have fallen into uh, and the evidence of that is found in the uh, the guest list on the podcast Mm -hmm. is that um the majority of our guests are male and over 40. Uh, and I think... The most hated is, people on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's telling. And what I've been trying to do over the last little while is to, is to um, break outside of this bubble, uh, some would say comfort zone, and try to ensure, A, that we speak to... Uh, more women, and that we just balance out that whole uh, gender situation. And I know you've got some sensitivities around that, but we won't go there. Today. Hey, I'm pro. I'm pro <laughs> ladies. <laughs> and also uh, break outside of that age, um, you know, uh, mm. situation, so that yep. we don't have, you know, just limit ourselves to forty-year-old and above women. And thank God for Austin Ash, eh? Austin Ash, he certainly helped us to push out of that boundary. Yeah, he certainly did. I'm trying to think who our youngest would have been, probably Angus. Yeah, yep. Crock Candy. Uh, yes, our Crock Candy guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we need to get him back on the podcast, actually. He's been doing some great things. He's been winning awards all over the globe, this fella. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so it'll be good to have him on. Mm. But um, tonight uh, we've got uh, uh, someone um, that I know. Uh, I, I don't. Do you know her, by the way? Just I do not. No, you don't know. Well, I think we're good. connected, though, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. Um, Through social, I think. Yeah, Peter Kafka's put us in a group chat to help me with my ah, website. Ah, there you go. Right. <laughs> so, so you 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 asked her to speak before we introduced her, so you broke our rule, but that's all <laughs> that's right. A, that's okay. Our special guest this evening, someone that I've been trying to get onto the podcast for a while, but it sort of went a little bit uh, skewy, but here we are. Sizzle Wenkosi Fiana. How are you, Sizzle? I'm very well, thank you, Leon, and thank you, Peter, for having me on today. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Nice to have you. So, uh, Sizzle, you've shortened, you've shortened your name to Sizzle, but your actual full name is Sizzle Wenkosi, right? <laughs> Yes, it is. Why do you always laugh when I say that? <laughs> because you're like the only person in the world yeah. who ever calls me by my full name. Not even your mum when she's upset with you? <laughs> only when she's upset. <laughs> only when they're upset. <laughs> uh, right. Well, it's a cool name, I have to say, Sizzle. Um, <laughs> Thank you. 
you know, this, uh, I don't know any other. Do you, uh, do you Pete? Oh, absolutely not. Yeah, it's, it's a one of a kind and uh, it's special because, you know, it, it, uh, it's got some good connotations to it. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, indeed. Um, now, Sizzle, where were you born? I was born in Zimbabwe. Uh, specifically, I was born in Blawayo. Okay, so we know that from cricket, don't we, Pete? I was going to say, I'm, I may be limited to Harare, but uh, I'm certain Bulawayo yeah. is where they also, this is a second town, isn't it, or city? Yeah, yeah. So, like, you've got Harare is like a, um, where our corrupt president was, uh-huh. I guess that's what you could call it. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Robert Mugabe, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm basically about an hour away, so about an hour flight away from Harare. So, and a little, I lived in a little town called Kaldra Park. So mm-hmm. I lived in Kaldra Park, and yeah. So one hour by flight, it, it, mm-hmm. Melbourne to Sydney is an hour. You can drive it in eight or so hours. How long would the drive take if if you could oh. undertake it? You see. I would say the same amount of time to get to Melbourne, but we uh, we don't have proper roads. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, That's our cab doesn't go towards the roads. It goes <laughs> towards something else. Right. Towards uh, Robert Mugabe's mansion maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Paved with gold. <laughs> so you, uh, you, you mentioned in your uh, little spiel that you sent me, you're 20, is that right? Yep. So you're born yep. in the year 2001. No, 2000. I turned 21 in December. Oh, mm. what day in December? 4th of December. Oh, okay. So, I know what you're getting at there, Leon. Because uh, I always like to know that sort of, you know, periphery around the 25th. <laughs> <laughs> same, same star sign, not the same star sign. <laughs> not star sign. It's all about the presence, mate, and, uh, and right. the absence. <laughs> I think December 4th, it, it sits outside of the, the Christmas zone. So yeah, probably doubles up. It's probably you put the Christmas tree up on December the 4th, do you, Susan? No, I'll put it up on the 1st. <laughs> on the 1st, right, right. So your, your, your presents don't end up under the tree? Your, your birthday presents don't end up under the tree? No, I'm a bit, I'm, I'm a bit impatient, so I want my birthday presents on my birthday, you see. Right. And then <laughs> well, there's nothing impatient about that. <laughs> So, um, so, so 2000, right. Um, well, that was an auspicious year to be born, the first year of the millennium. Mm. Yep. Well, some would say the last year of the previous millennium. I don't know. I don't want to get to that. <laughs> <laughs> Is this how woke the world has become now? Right? I have no idea, mate. But um, uh, so how, how many years were you in Zimbabwe? Only three years. So Only yeah. three. So you can barely remember it. If at all. Yeah. Yeah. The only reason why I do remember it is because we go back every two years. Ah. Yeah. Right. So so raised in Australia from that age? No. No. Ah, right. Because I'm going to say there's still a distinct accent. Yes, it's a British accent. You would have shaken it as a (laughs) (laughs) three-year-old. Uh, Sizzle speaks to Queen's English, Pete. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, never mind. (laughs) So um, so, so your parents, were they both born in Zimbabwe as well? Yep. All of us were born in Zimbabwe. And uh, and they were in the same town, Bulawayo? 
Yes, yes. Okay. So three years old, you will then set up, uh, went north. Pretty much, yes. Uh, to the UK. Yeah. And, and what? Why was that? I think for a better life. My dad was like, "There's nothing here for my kids, you know. So I've got to, got to take them somewhere else for a better future, I guess." And and what does he do? He's a social worker. So both of them studied social work in the UK. And wow. I work in for territory families as dad's a team leader and mom's a social worker there. What did he do in Zimbabwe? They were teachers. They were both teachers. Wow. Okay. And a part of my ignorance on the timeline here, but was old mate Mugabe in full swing? I know he was president still, but was he in full swing of his corruption? Had, had things started to break down by that point? When I was three. I would say a little bit, yeah. and especially towards, and I think there's still this war between, so I'm Debele and you've got Shonas, yeah. and because he's with a Shona, he didn't like Debele as much, so there was uh-huh. a, how would you say it? Um, so we were sort of pushed back. We were seen yeah. as the white sheep in the family, you know, yeah. in, the, in the country. You favoured the other side. Yeah, you know, and yeah. I must say, um, growing up, I heard that he, he was actually pretty good before, and I okay. was shocked to hear that. You know that he was a good president before, because yeah. all I've heard is the corruption that was that he'd caused. Mm. Well, it, it, you you remember the um, there's a series on TV uh, as a kid. Your, your uh, primary school teacher may may have uh, forced you to watch it at some point in time called Behind the News. Did you ever did you ever no. watch that show? No, not 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 you, Susan. I'm asking Pete because this is an Australian thing. Look, I might have been absent for that class. <laughs> <laughs> you were absent for most of it, weren't you? <laughs> it's not ringing a bell. Oh, right, right. So behind the news is sort of this kind of like documentary for kids, you know. Mm. And it was to, you know, the idea was to get kids um, used to watching the news and asking questions and stuff. What a shocking concept. I uh, know. And uh, I remember distinctly being in... Grade, I'm going to say, oh, no, it's clearly not distinctly. I feel it was grade seven, uh, and and um, I think Mugabe came into power in 1980, didn't he? Or was it, was it around that time? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, first I got wind of him. He seemed to have been there for 40 or 50 years by that point, but yeah. it probably <laughs> wasn't quite that long. <laughs> Because I remember that we watched behind the news and it was yeah. all about him be you know, in Zimbabwe getting its independence and he was the first prime minister of Zimbabwe yeah. and it heralded, uh, uh, you know, a new beginning because the, the country used to be called Rhodesia. Yeah, yeah. Um, after Cecil Rhodes. Um, you, might, you might know, uh, you might be more familiar with Cecil Rhodes from the Rhodes Scholarship Pete. I think. Um, oh, right. It certainly, wasn't, might have found it found certainly it. wasn't the quality of roads in Zimbabwe, according to <laughs> what we heard before. <laughs> I do remember the Rhodes Scholarship, yes. Yeah, yeah. So I think Bob Hawke was a recipient of that. A famous uh, one, yeah. And Malcolm uh, Turnbull? Not Turnbull. Oh, look, he may have. Yeah, actually, no, you're right. He yeah. was. He was. In fact, you're absolutely correct. Mm. And so was uh, Tony Abbott, interestingly oh, okay. enough. Yeah, right. Yeah. Wow. So, um, yeah. So, in fact, I'm just looking at it now. 
It was 1980. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so um, interesting. Um, so, Sizzle, you, uh, your parents thought, okay, well, it was time to go. He would have been in power then for 23-odd years. Um, and they, they, with their teaching qualifications, it was easy to get permanent residency in the UK? Is that how it worked? Look, with me... I, I sort of, I feel like being so young, I missed the struggle. Mm. I just got told at the age of seven that I had to go to the citizenship ceremony to get my, my British citizenship. <laughs> <laughs> so I have no idea what happened in the first seven years, but I remember having to stand with like the mayor and put my hand up to, you know, when I was like seven to say yes and mm. hold my certificate. So I think there was a bit of struggle, I think, that my parents went through. So I think when they moved to England, um, they had diplomas in teaching. See, in Zimbabwe, right. diploma was enough to be a teacher, whereas, you know, in the UK, you needed a, a degree. Right. So they decided mm. to switch over and study social work. And, right. Yeah. And, and most importantly, when you got your British citizenship, uh, do you recall the colour of your previous passport? The Zimbabwean one? Yeah. Yeah, it was like green. It was green or something. Green, like. okay, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm intrigued by the colour of passports. When you travel overseas, you see there's like the the uh, dark red British and, of course, Australia has the navy blue, but you see some green ones and there's some other odd ones. But, yeah, I don't think I've ever seen a Zimbabwean passport. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's a green. It's a green one. Okay. The, the, all the dodgy countries have green ones, I think. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, it does not. I'm not going to lie, man. Unfortunately, <laughs> Pakistan did come to mind there. <laughs> I was thinking of the Middle East, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe. You could be right. But, yeah, I didn't want to say it, but thanks for telling me. <laughs> <laughs> We're not very politically correct on this uh, podcast, no, and, it's, and it's generally Pete that, uh, it, you know, leads the charge, but occasionally they are falling to the... <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I leave the really obvious ones for Leon just to whack out of the park. <laughs> That's all right. So um, we're in, in about in the UK in London itself? Or no, so I lived no. in Peterborough. Oh, Peterborough. Peterborough, where's that? About an hour away, so maybe 100 miles away from London itself. What's the um, nearest biggest city for, to there? Cambridgeshire, so it's up north. Ah, right. Yeah, so I lived in. Well, uh, no, I don't, <laughs> but, I mean, I'm presuming it's near uh, a university, but the, the reason for me is the accent's not London and I'm just, yeah. uh, it, it, there's a fleck of some northern stuff in there. I'm wondering where that's come from. <laughs> yeah, I lived up north, so uh, in Peterborough, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. One thing you'll find about Sizzle as she continues to speak, you'll pick this up, she, uh, the, the accent, uh, her accent, she drops the Gs off everything. Yeah, yeah. So yes. it'll be like spelling. Accounting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which I, I, did, I did see some irony in the fact that mum and dad used to be teachers and they changed to um, social work when they got to the UK because Lord knows the British need to know how to speak English, so maybe they might have been able to help. Uh, that's not what social work is, Pete. <laughs> no, I'm saying they should have stayed as teachers and taught the British how to speak. <laughs> oh, dear. Right, so Peterborough, that is, yeah, gosh, I have no idea where, where that is. Well, I know Peterborough and Victoria, but I don't know the English version. 
So what was it like? Were there many other Zimbabweans in that town? Yeah, there was heaps. There was oh, heaps. Really? And I just see. I need to. I need to stop comparing it to Darwin. See, when I look back, I need to. Um, I I liked it. I liked it. I guess I I had no choice. I, you know, I was yeah. just told to get on the plane and. Here's where we live now. <laughs> yeah, um, but no, I liked it. I liked the um, culture of football in England. That's oh, what I nice. like. Who's your team? So you guys, Arsenal. Oh well, well, we were going to be friends, but sadly that's not going to happen. <laughs> you uh, with Liverpool? No, no, no. But I am with the red team. Um, United. Yeah, correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, yes. Oh, now let me just uh, get my head around this. So, why is Peterborough a Zimbabwean hotspot? I don't know. <laughs> That's the weather, I think. But and how yeah. and why Arsenal if you lived in Peterborough? Because my brother, my brother's 10 years older than me and he would support uh, Arsenal. So, okay, I liked football and like he was all about Arsenal. So, I was like, oh, let me just tag along. And so, did and he then, support them prior to leaving Zimbabwe? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And why did he pick them? I don't know. Okay. (laughs) To this day, so he he currently lives in Melbourne with his wife and his daughter, and he still stays up until 4 o'clock just to watch him. Yeah, yeah. Time difference. So I can't do that. Yeah, it's hard. When I lived in the Middle East, it was much easier because they were sort of five hours behind. So it was actually, the timing was actually quite good. But, Mm. yeah, it's got to be a blockbuster to get up at that sort of time. Uh, mm-hmm. The time difference between there and Darwin is killer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, Pete. I'm looking at the map of Peter of the UK here. Peterborough yep. is due north of London, but on this about the same latitude as Birmingham. Right. So it's actually quite far out. Yeah, because like an hour in England, it, it, you know, you're it's another country almost. It's another country, and many accents <laughs> <Yeah>. later. <laughs> Interesting. So, uh, ten years. So it would have taken you to thirteen. You would have gone to school. What was it like growing up in the UK in Peterborough as a little Zimbabwean girl? Oh, this one. This is a this is a full on question. So. I thought I was, look, when I started school, I thought it was going to be easy, you know, go to preschool, you know, but I remember the first day my parents took me to preschool, I didn't even understand a word. My mum still tells me about this story where she put me in preschool and she wanted to cry because everyone was talking to me in English and I didn't know what they were saying. (laughs) Wow. So um, I don't even, I don't actually, I can't recall a time when I actually started speaking English. Um, I think I just, I just picked it up. But I do remember meeting my best friend. Um, She was in preschool as well and uh, we're just playing with the with the toys in the in the play area and we weren't even saying anything um and I think her being full British like she sort of that you know that came off on me like what does that actually me. mean by full British do you mean like white like, British is that what you yeah, said yeah she was born, born there bread. born and bred right. she's never left mm. hmm. so um you know, have, hearing her talk to her parents, like mama, dada, um, stuff like that, I picked up on that and I went, oh, you know, yeah, this, is, right. this is the lingo. It's, it's the perfect age from what I understand. Yeah. If you're going to teach a child another language, that 
I think that that age between two and five is is like when they absorb the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And so she became your best friend. Yeah. So we've been best friends. I still talk to her now. I spoke to her oh, this wow. morning. Um, What's her can, name? You can do that now. Emma. Too. Emma Parker. <laughs> Sounds British. Um, yes. So what language did you speak prior to learning English? Ndevele, so, oh. yeah. Is that a dialect or is it the Zimbabwean national language? <laughs> Look, there's a bit of, I don't want to say it on the podcast, but I think there's a bit of drama between the Shonas and Develis. So I don't want to say ours is the, ours is the dominant one. Oh, no, we're, we're very politically incorrect here. So Hey, Sizzle goes back every two years, mate. Oh, you okay. want it to be a one-way trip, right? Yeah, it's, not, <laughs> it's not like the People's Republic of China. I think they've got no. other issues to worry about. <laughs> as it to might be like... It, it might be like I get off the plane and their recipe for talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> for announcing that the national language is yours. The stranger things have happened. That's true. Anyway, um, right. And so growing up, uh, you know, did you fit in? It, was, there, was there issues with sort of being a Zimbabwean girl there? I mean, yeah. talk to us yeah. about that. There was a lot of issues growing up really, um, as really. a Zimbabwean girl. A lot of issues. Um, firstly, let's be honest, you know, the racism was mm. was a big thing. Mm. Um, even from a young age, maybe from like year four, you know, I used to get picked on because of my um my skin color. I remember there was one time when my dad like shaved our heads because back home as a female, you know, when you go to school, you you go you you you're bold. So they cut your hair, shave your head. Mm. So my dad thought you did the same in England, and he learned very quickly that <laughs> you don't go bold to school. That's more for <laughs> the skinheads, I think. <laughs> so I got I got bullied a lot um, in in primary school, and it was it was just a name calling. It was always a name calling, like you know, go back to where you came from or the N word, and mm. um, you know, people asking me if I could actually speak English because I didn't look white. Um, but so, there's, yeah, a lot of, there's a lot of uh, African, the people of African descent in the UK, though, isn't there? Heaps, right? Yeah, there's heaps. But the problem is, right, and I don't want to go into depth with this, but as Africans, well, there's racism between us. Yes. Right. You know, and that's yes. the problem is that we're racist between each other, but we're yep. trying to fight racism outside, whereas we've got to start at home and deal with mm. what's happening between us. And so, yeah, there's a lot of, there's quite a bit of racism between, you know, the African You'd have, like, West Indians as well. There are quite a lot of West yeah. Indians in the UK, right? Yeah, heaps, heaps. Yeah. Right. And so how did you uh, sort of cope with all of that stuff, Sizzle? Oh, look, I wasn't the best child at school. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be honest here. I wasn't the the perfect, you know, most you know, well behaved child. I was I was a runner mark, mm-hmm. and I think that I was my way of. of <laughs> he's okay, <laughs> and that was my way of like you know protecting myself. I had to put a facade on because I didn't want to cry. I didn't want to mm-hmm. show people that you know I had to put a facade on. So if I if I looked tough, they would leave me alone. You see, mm-hmm. so. It, but it didn't last too long because if I act tough, they'll do it more. So now I act more tough and it ends mm. up, you know, it just ends up me getting in trouble or us end up in the office, you know, at the age of what, seven, eight? Right. And did you think it was handled well at all? A friend no. Teachers said they had just no idea how to deal with it, right? 
Yeah, there was a few teachers that were really good at dealing with racism, but most of them, there was a time where they like followed me home and popped my tires. Um, and the wow. teachers were like, that's they just sent them home the next day, but it wasn't, I don't think it was handled well. Um, mm. but I don't regret any of it because a lot of them message me now and like, I like, Sizzle, you're so successful. And I'm like, but you used to bully me at school. <laughs> <laughs> Did you forget that bit? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, um, it wasn't, I didn't, I didn't feel like it was handled effectively um, mm. at all. Yeah. Interesting. And, and so um, was there anything else about growing up there that you think um, would be good for us to know? I think I challenged um, our cultural expectations. Um, mm. At a very, very young age, I was into football, which, you know, is called soccer here. And, you know, being an African girl, mm. you don't, you go, you don't go out and play football. You stay home and mm. you make sure the dinner's cooked and the dishes are done. But I broke that straight away. And it wasn't me. I didn't intentionally mean to break that. It was me just being me. I was like, oh, yeah, the sports, yeah. it's a good sport. I want to play it. So I started playing at school. Like I'll take the soccer ball to school and stuff. And then my friends would, would play outside after school. And I, I did challenge my parents yep. a lot. I think I was the tough, I've been the toughest kid out of all of us because I really challenged their social expectations. Um, yeah. So you're an Arsenal fan. You grew up playing soccer. So who, who's your favourite African footballer of all time? No, there's no favourite African one, but there's a favourite footballer of all time. Okay. Patrick <laughs> what's Vieira? His name? Theory no. What's his name? Um, now that we're speaking about it, I've completely lost it. Number 10. Who's number 10 on Arsenal? Robin Van Persie. Oh, wow. Robin okay. Van Persie. <laughs> I love I was in love with Robin Van Persie. <laughs> yeah, right. I might add that he ended up at United, but we won't go there. Um, yeah, I know. Let's not talk about that one. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, when the, the influence. Arsenal was... had a great team, though, though Pete. Yeah. I remember 2001. Yeah. Uh, geez, they, they, won the, they won the trifecta, yeah, the, but, the premiership. But the... I wouldn't remember that because she was only one. <laughs> 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 but they had the dream team, you know, with uh, Patrick Vieira and Thierry. Yeah, Lee they did. And, they did. Yeah, uh, I've tried to forget. forget. About <laughs> 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 yeah. but, I mean, the, the, the influence of African footballers, uh, you know, throughout not just the EPL but European football has been amazing. Yeah. So, And it would have started well in advance of, of you moving to the UK. So. I'm shocked that people were so backward in their thinking even back then. Yeah, even when I go back now, um, I'm a bit of like I'm seen as a white sheep because, <laughs> like, I wear shorts everywhere and I wear <laughs> sports shirts, you know, like, yeah. whereas I should be in a dress, I should be modest and I should be married and that's <laughs> my husband. Yeah, none of that's uh, yeah. happening. So. Need not apply. <laughs> So uh, 13, that's a pretty, uh, uh, you know, important age uh, of yeah. lots of changes and your parents decided to pull up stumps and come to Australia. <laughs> Change countries as well. Yeah, it all happened within the space of six months. Like I thought they were joking. Like I was like, oh, we're moving to Australia. And I told my friends at school, you know, you know how parents are like, don't tell anyone. But, you know, I went to school and told everyone, oh, we're moving to Australia, you know, being 13. And everyone's like, no, you know. Even I was like, no, we're not. We're, just, we're, not, we're never leaving England. And then dad went off to an interview. You know, he was, he was doing interviews at night with 
people in Australia because hmm. it was your daytime. And yeah. still, I was like, no, nothing. We're not going anywhere. And then he got the job in Darwin. And wow. <laughs> I just remember the big trucks coming to pick up everything. We had to just put everything on the trucks to be shipped, shipped off. And Yeah. 2013. They wouldn't have got far yeah. on trucks. No, they paid for our flights. um, NT government paid for our flights and everything. Gave us accommodation when we came. Wow! And so your parents had never been to Australia, but do you know? Did they ever tell you why they wanted to move? Dad was like, "We need change," and I was like, "I'm going into like I was planning to go into middle school with my mates. You know, like I was like, I want to go to Bushfield and." Then we just we left. We left yeah. the same day they started um, the new year. So they started the school year in September, and yeah. we got here in September. So you you went from Zimbabwe at a tender age to the UK. Uh, you spent a lot of your formative years there, and then the uh, getting into the teenage years, you drop into Darwin with a, a pseudo Birmingham accent, and. Uh, it's, you know, I mean, you know now that Darwin is not only remote in Australia but very different for Australia as well. So yeah, yeah. what a culture shock. Yeah, I think when I um, I came here and all I could see was desert flying in, like yes. when we got to um, the Darwin oh, Airport. Red dirt. And I think, and I, think I, I cried for at least two months when I was here. I was a bit, <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to go back to England, honestly. I was crying. Yeah, yeah. And because I remember walking up the, the, after you do your, after you come off the plane, you know, you come downstairs to the, pick up your luggage. And I just, I didn't see any shops. I didn't see any big. Like, yeah. like Heathrow, I was expecting like There's London no Heathrow, and I was just like, "What is this?" And then we came out, and the, all we could feel was the heat. The heat just blew us away because we <laughs> were like September. <laughs> yeah. Welcome. We were in like these cold, you know, jackets yeah, and yeah. you know, um, boots, and I just couldn't believe it. I was like, "Where are we?" Like, <laughs> I was really shocked. And so this is, I mean, you, your family. You mentioned your brother is ten years older. Then you've got your your sister, Sissa. Um, yeah. uh, are there any others? Yeah, so my there's a, the eldest is 33, and then my brother's 31, and then I turned 21 this year, and sister's 18. That's uh. a big gap between two and three. Yeah, sometimes I feel like I was a mistake. <laughs> Let's not go there because 10 years is quite a long gap. It's quite a long gap. <laughs> Normally, and then what's sister if you were a mistake? <laughs> no, I feel like she was bad. I feel like they were thinking, like, oh, if we have sizzle, then you know they want even numbers. So I think everyone was planned but me. Because I, I must can, say, I can actually answer that question as a as a parent of five children. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I kept going till I found one I liked. Oh dear! Yeah, that okay. sounds about right. Yeah, I hope yeah. not listening to this. Um, <laughs> right. So, but and the, your oldest is that a, a, a brother or a sister? A sister. So she's still in England. So she doesn't want to move. She, oh. she, so she sounds nothing uh, like you, right? So, so, so she stayed. Yeah. She stayed, so they were doing, she studied nursing, so they were both at uni at the same time. So my brother also took the social work path and he was studying social work when we left and she was just mm. finishing up nursing. But she didn't want, she doesn't want to move, uh, I think, her and her partner. And they were both yeah. over 18 anyway. Yeah. Well, so yeah. is her brother. Yeah. yeah. That's what I mean, the brother and sister. Yeah. 
So even he, even though he is an adult, he still came as part of the family. No, my brother stayed, so they they both stayed in England. Oh, your brother stayed as well, right? Okay. Yeah, it was just me and my younger sister that that moved with my parents. Your parents were okay to leave them there. Uh, I think they were a bit worried. I think I remember them getting lectured every night for like six weeks before we left <laughs> about how they needed to do the right thing mm. when we're gone. But, but uh, mum and dad knew they wouldn't because they were over eighteen. But yeah, they stayed and we moved and yeah. I think right. that's a really interesting question, though, Leon, because I can see the the thoughts running around your head of. That wouldn't happen in a million years in my family, but I'm thinking. Well, I just, I'm just looking at you, thinking, you know, regardless of the fact that they're of legal age, you would, you would, uh, you know, call the shots. But I'm thinking from my point of view, once you hit 18, there is no parental control, mate. It's done, mate. I, I'm ready to let one of mine go right now. I can tell you, <laughs> he's he's well under 18. <laughs> 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 that might be, a, might be a special case. Oh gosh! Anyway, um, right. So Darwin, not really keen. Did you go to Good Shepherd straight away? Is that you? you no, we went to went to Rosebury. So we lived in Rosebury for yeah. like two months, or two three months. Yeah. And obviously, because thing is in England, right? You don't need. The private schools here are just as good as the public schools in England. So in, right. in England, you would never think about sending your child to a private school because education was really good. What about so we thought the same. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> beyond private. Mate. That's very private. <laughs> so um, we, you know, they sent us to Rosebury. Yeah. And we thought, you know, Rosebury was going to be the same as, you know, mm. British schools. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, so it was, a, it was a big shock to my parents. Yeah, I, I didn't mind because they told me that there was no homework at the school. So I, I didn't, you know, I was like, oh, yeah. But my parents were like, yeah, nah, as soon as you finish, because they had only three months left before the um, Christmas break. And they were like, you're going somewhere else. And um, they were, there was many <laughs> schools. There was like Camilda, Essington, and then Good Shepherd. And Good Shepherd was the one they put me in. And yeah, it's you know you have a rubbish school when even the recent immigrants are saying, bugger that, I'm going private. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, like, I, I know there's, the African population in Darwin has increased a lot over the last 20 years, but um, when you mm-hmm. first came, were you, were you sort of, like, new? Were you, like, trendsetters? Yeah, we were new, and there was other there was other African families that had moved maybe a couple months before us or a couple months after that we knew. There was a family that knew us in England that also moved here, and they lived wow. in Rosebury. Um, so they were also social workers as well, and they got jobs with. Well, back then it was Department of Children. You know, mm. was that coordinated at all? No, it was not coordinated. <laughs> <laughs> Two families from the UK of Zimbabwean background end up in Rosebury and Darwin. What? Magic, eh? <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think I'm going to school, like, you know, touching on, you know, middle school here, you know. I didn't mind Rosebury because it was only three months and I was leaving. And then I got into Good Shepherd and it, I don't know. I can't say I was shocked. I thought, oh, like, you know. I thought it was a good school. Like, I want to be very honest on this podcast, you know. I, I thought it was a good school. Um, 
But what I find, I found that very quickly, it just, I was the only black person in the whole school. Like, uh, and, and Good Shepherd. At Good Shepherd, except for your kids, but they're in primary school, Leon. In the middle school, I was the only black person. Middle school, high school, I was the only black person. Wow. Only black student. And I was shocked. I went, what's going on? Like, yeah. And the way the reason why I noticed it is because I would get comments. Like, People would tell me, like, go back on my boat. And I used to be like, I didn't come here on the boat. Like, yeah. I came here on Qantas. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah. So, and I realized very quickly that's when I really experienced racism in 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 Darwin. What more um, than the more than the UK? Yeah, more than the UK. Really? Uh, that's, that's there just wasn't any support from teachers. There was no support at all from that school when it came to racism. Why do you think that is? Have you got any belief as to why that it's more think, pronounced here? Be me being, I think. I think me being even even when we went for the school interview, right? We were told that we're the one of the first black families in in the middle schools. We we got told that in the interviews, and I think yeah. maybe it was a shock to everyone to see someone who's of different color mm. um attend the school. And but I like there was just no support. You tell a teacher and they're like, "Oh, you know, it's okay." And I'm like, <laughs> "It's actually not okay." Yeah. You know, like, um, they said so it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Why would they say that? Like, I, I, that was their in-depth anti-government training they were given. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but they were trained by the um, what's it called? Is there any the problems? Just um, okay. Yeah, but they were trained by the Lutheran <laughs> school, so they were trained by their mom. But no, not going, <laughs> not going into depth on that one because I can be petty, but. Um, yeah, I, did, I just there was no support going through school when it came to racism, and then the problem is I had this idea that I'll take any everything on, I'll take things into my own hands. That's my mm. problem. That's what got me into trouble at school because oh, right. the teachers didn't do anything. Then I would, I'll, I'll, I'll stand up to them. So what did you do? Now, what, what, what does standing up look like? Um, like <laughs> fighting with them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you threw a few punches. <laughs> yeah, no, don't put this in the pot. But, yeah, like, I was I was that student like I was because I had to protect myself. I had to find a way mm. to get by without because it hurt. It did. It mm. did. There was a point where I had no friends because I used to. You know, there was a point in year eleven where someone came into class wearing a KKK mask, and I was I was told that that's his culture. <laughs> what well, being a racist pig? How's that a culture? You know what I mean, yeah, yeah. Wow. So um. Who t- who's told you that it was his culture? Uh, was it like a teacher young, or a student? It was a teacher, yeah. yeah. Teacher. A teacher said that? Yeah, yeah. All right, name and names. I was I told. Who that was. <laughs> <laughs> and I was told so many, like, that people were asking me, oh, Sizzle, can you understand English? Like, that was the first question people would ask me. And I was like, yes, I understand English. Like, I grew up in England. And, yeah, I got to, you know, because I had such a bad rep at the school, people were like, you're not going to get in the way in your life, all this stuff, you're not going to succeed, you wow. know, you're going to end up on the side of the road. And I was like, okay, whatever. So was, let me ask you this question, right? Because, um, you know, I've got young kids and every now and then, you know, one of them will come home and say something happened at school and, and my methods of dealing with it are probably not what the, uh, you know, various state and territory governments would, would recommend. But do you feel 
after going through the experiences that you did and choosing that path of, okay, I'm going to fight fire with fire, which to be brutally honest, I fully respect. I'm like, I'm happy with that. Do you you feel it got the desired result or did it backfire or, or, you know, what what was the outcome for you? No, it backfired because I used to get suspended Uh, (laughs) because that was the thing. Like I would fire it. And that's why I don't understand sometimes when it comes to the school system because um, people provoke a child and that child could be doing nothing. As soon as that child fires back, it's the child's problem and I don't agree with that. Sizzle, it is not the school system. I'm going to tell you this. I had a boy, I have a boy, a five-year-old, who two times in a week, the week before last, got mm. got sent home with a reflection sheet. A reflection sheet means the boy did something wrong and he needs to go and think about it. And the second time I blew up because this kid, he's tough. He, you know, He's got mm. older siblings, so he knows how to look after himself. Mm. but he's not a fighter. He, he, he would never start a fight, and I'll defend that as his parent. Mm-hmm. And I rang the principal and I said, mate, you need to get your house in order because this kid's being provoked. I, yes. I, don't, I don't know who's doing it, but I'll tell you right now, he would never, ever start a fight with someone, but he kept getting caught, and that was his problem. He mm-hmm. retaliated both times and got caught, and Same. the perpetrator did not get in yeah. trouble. Exactly. Exactly. That's that, that's what used to happen to me because my parents used to be confused because, you know, all the other kids were so well behaved at school, no issues. My brother did experience bullying, but he was smart about the way he went about it. Whereas for me, I used to fight fire with fire, and then I would get sent home suspended or sent home halfway through, um, through the day, and my parents would be like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "It's actually not me." Because I'll get double trouble, you know, so I'll get in trouble at yeah, school and yeah. get in trouble at home. And I used yep. to be like, Dad, it's not me. Like, it's not all me. And it wasn't until I left and we look back now, my dad goes, why did I waste my money at that school? <laughs> <laughs> he was trying to do the right thing. Yeah. But, yeah. So all of this stuff um, uh, had a consequence, did it, Sizzle? It did. It did. And how did that play out? I don't know. I used to sit in the principal's office and get told that I was being sent home or I was getting a phone call home or I was being suspended for a couple of days or they'll put me in isolation. And I used to just sit there and just – I used to try to argue sometimes, but those times I was like, you know, I just put me in suspension. But then what you'd find is that the kids would walk past when I was in the office and laugh at me through the window mm-hmm. because – they knew, they knew, they knew how to um, get to me. Yep. You know, they knew what to say. Um, like I got told that I had Ebola and to go back to Africa like at one stage. But Wow. How yeah. ignorant. Yeah, but nothing was, yeah. So that, that was the consequences that I would be suspended. Mm. And can I just ask, Sizzle, like what sort of kids, I mean, I mean, you know the, oh. the, the kids, I mean, were there a certain type of kid that would, because I know it wouldn't be the entire school that would be doing this, surely. It would be just it a, like, a minority of kids, right? Yeah, you know the boys, I think they're cool, like the white Australian boys. <laughs> I think they're cool in the, you know, in the pack. So it would right. be them. It would be them uh, kids. Sporting types or? Yeah. Smoking the popular types. ones. Okay. The sporty types and right. the popular ones. So and they, they, I suspect they, they do it amongst themselves. Like, you know, they do it in packs, would they? Yeah. 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 
Yeah. And they need to do that, obviously, to show their own bravado to their own mates. Yeah. But what about yeah. girls? Uh, see, I never, I never, I never really had friends <laughs> in mm. school, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I never had, I never really hung around girls. Um, there was a f- one or two, but it wasn't like what I put up with with the fellas. Yeah. You know? It wasn't. There was more like they would laugh when the boys would do it and just like. Yeah, yeah they, cool. they, they were being caught up in the herd. Yeah. Mm. But I'm just really interested, Pete, as to why it's worse here in Darwin than it is in the UK. I, I, that's something that I just, well, you know. I just wondered, and look, I, I, I'm going to say this with no degree of knowledge, but just listening and, and watching and thinking. I remember when I first came to Darwin, I just, I was really shocked at how other people that I spent time with socially at work, you know, in, in corporate situations. And if I had to put a banner over it, yes, I'd say they're probably, you know, white Australians in that group. I just found it, you know, to say off-putting is not strong enough a word, but the way they used to speak about Aboriginal people, mm. I just found it amazing. And, and you know, without sort of using that terrible expression of, well, anybody with dark skin is all the same, I just wonder whether because that is tolerated and that is considered acceptable in Darwin, maybe Sizzle got caught up in that way of thinking and the fact that it isn't really policed. I mean, some of the things people used to say to me, I was offended by it and I'm not Aboriginal, but it seems to me that, that they are a group of people that people will say the most awful things about and there doesn't seem to be any consequences for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when, when you look back on that sizzle now, I mean, I know you're still young, but do you, do, you, do you look at it differently? Do you look at it like, um, you, you know, we've been talking about the kinds of people that did this sort of stuff, right? Do you look at it like I can understand now why they behaved the way they did? And, uh, you know, I'm just... Do, do you reflect on that? I do, but I can never. I I just can't comprehend that level of yeah. behavior in Leon. Mm. Um, I could understand basic bullying. Look, bullying happens, you know, mm. bickering. But the stuff like Ebola, telling me I had Ebola, yeah. that stuff, Leon, was just mm. unacceptable. And I think it comes down to um what they're hearing at home, you know, like. You know, mm. like if, if this is acceptable on the dinner table, the kid's going to come to school and say it. Um, and one of the, the parents might have something to do with it as well. Yeah, one of the one of the um, boys that was involved, um, his parents were really like, um, you know, how you've got the white supremacists in America. They were mm, like yeah. that, and they're trying to bring that here. So they had that culture wow. here within their family, Cheap. and they're accepted into good shape. But yeah, with all the Christian teaching. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. Anybody, <laughs> anybody can lie in an interview, Leo. Well, hang on, I forgot the KKK are Christians. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so um, I think sometimes it's it just stems from from home, you know. But then again, it's about when I see this um, fella um, out now. You know, we're both twenty. He's, he's still the same. Nothing's changed. Yeah. And there, there has to be a time where someone goes, "Okay, that's what I learned." 
I know it's wrong, yeah. but it's up to me to change now. Whereas, and that's an individual thing. And if he chooses mm. not to, then, you know, that's, that's his own call. Mm. You know, but I think by the, you know, by the school letting people get away with this, they think it's okay. You know. So do you think that there should be some sort of specialist training for for teachers? Yeah, I mean, God bless the Northern Territory education system. Uh, <laughs> but, but do you think there should be some kind of specialist training? Or is there? Do they even yeah. get any training about how to deal with children? No. Or do they just learn to teach? They just learn to teach, Leon. There's no real, like, consequence or how to manage racism in schools. I haven't come across my whole entire school and I haven't come across a school that effectively manages racism. Mm-hmm. You know, there was this one time when the principal came in and lectured the class about how it's not okay to be racist, et cetera, et cetera, but it can't be once in a blue moon. It needs to be yeah, yeah, yeah. practised, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, so all of this stuff um, affected your mental health? Yeah, but I think I didn't really realise it until I got older. So I used to just suppress all of that. I used to be like, oh, it's happened, we're moving on now. And then we moved to Catherine when I was 15. We moved mm. to Catherine. Wow. So my parents weren't even more, they weren't even more remote. Yeah. They got jobs at the Department yeah. of Children and Families. And we moved to Catherine and I was like, okay, fresh start, you know, starting new and one thing I did very, I did, uh, one thing I did in Catherine was I got involved with the community. I realised there was nothing to do, so I volunteered with the local youth hubs. Mm. Um, instead of being the youth myself, I used to volunteer as a youth agency. <laughs> <laughs> and they realised, I don't know what's shifted, but the compliments I get in there, they're like, you're so mature for your age. Like People didn't think I was 15. They thought maybe I was 17, 18. And I don't know whether going through that as as a 14, 13, 12-year-old had a part to play um, in regards to why I was so mature. But mm-hmm. I, I was looking for ways that I could help other students rather than, yeah, I don't know, it's a lot shifted. and Like the sizzle that was at Catherine High School is not the sizzle that was at Good Shepherd because mm-hmm. I felt more, the thing with Catherine High School, everyone was different. Yeah. Everyone was different. There was no, yeah, there was Indians, there was Chinese, you know, Indigenous people there. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I was just yeah. going to say, I, I I don't think you would have had the same situation mm. in Catherine as you would have a good shepherd. There would have been a, mm. a real mix. Yeah. And did you and enjoy then, that? Did you just think, well, this is, you know, this is more me? Yeah, I, I yeah. loved Catherine. I really yeah. didn't. But then. Said no one ever. Like, <laughs> 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 I must say, you know, like I do want to go out there and do some work for the kids. Um I loved Catherine, but then my parents were like, oh, we'll maybe back down now after two years. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So they moved me back and um, a lot of teachers, I don't know how people heard that I was coming back, but a lot of teachers were like, don't bring Sizzle back to Good Shepherd. And I was like, <laughs> okay. And then they put me at Good Shepherd. <laughs> so they put me back there, right? And so the first year I was, in year, I was back in the year 11, you know, mm. everything was going smoothly. There was a few Africans. I must say there was about three of us now, you know, wow. out of 1,500. Yeah, that's pretty good. Three <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was just getting along with my work, et cetera, et cetera. And then I think it started towards the end of year 11. It all started up again. You know, it was just like 
you know, why did Sizzle come back to the school? Like when I haven't even done anything, like yeah. I was just doing my work and kids would start on me again. And But I did the same thing with Shepherd where I would go out and help out because I, I helped out in Catherine and I was like, oh, I like this idea of service. Let me go help out around the school, around the community. And I got pretty popular with the kids. Like I walked down the hall and people were like, oh, hey, Sizzle, give me a high five. And I think at this point it became jealousy. It wasn't that Sizzle was black. It was more I talked, I spoke to everyone. I had the confidence to go out and yeah. you know, say, say things and make speeches in front of the school. And then – it started again. People were just giving me a hard time, like, you know, who do you think you are, Sizzle? And I was just here just trying to help make the place a better, you know, yeah, yeah. better place for everyone. So Clean up the riffraff. Um, yeah, that's, that's what I was trying to do, and it started mm. up again. And um, But this is where all that KKK stuff came in, you know, the, that fella that was, I was on about, he came in and he really gave me a hard time. This guy really gave me a hard time. Even he would make comments, for example, whenever we were in history class, we'd be like, oh, you know, Sizzle, weren't you a slave? And I was like, wow. wow. <laughs> and it's the fact that the teachers would hear this. So the, the system hadn't have changed since I was there in year seven yeah. and year eight. And it was just, it was acceptable. Even with the new teachers that came in and replaced the old teachers, it was still acceptable. And then were there any teachers, were there any teachers that, that, would, that would call this out, that would do anything? No, there was one no. teacher that came in and did a speech about how it's not acceptable. Um, that was that was about it, you know. And it, Leon, it's almost like they would try to call it out to not look bad. Yeah. But I knew they weren't doing anything. It was, it was obvious. Yeah, it was a gesture, but nothing more. Yeah. Mm. You know. That's very so, surprising, yeah. Sizzle. It's surprising because, you know, you – the teachers that are trying to teach you lots of things, right? Maths, English, you know, uh, uh, but also social studies. That's what it used to be called when I was at school, but I'm sure it's got a different name. <laughs> but but, but a part of teaching those sort of subjects, the humanities, is to look at things like racism and, and all those sort of things yeah. and to teach mm-hmm. kids about, you know, how bad they are. Yet yeah. when it's occurring right under their noses, they yeah. just don't seem to be able to make the connection for some reason. I don't understand yeah. and that. It's, it's the fact that when we had, like, you know, society and culture or humanities, it was called when I was, you know, we would have humanities and we'll talk about this and that's where the jokes would come in. Or sizzle, like, wasn't that the boat you yeah. came on? Like, you know how they'll show the videos of refugees? And then, but the teachers would be like, hey, boys, you know, that's not acceptable. You know, it was all that basic yeah, yeah. Basic discipline, you know, it was all that's not acceptable, etc. What do you think should have happened, Sizzle? What, what would they have... should have been suspended, Leon? They should have been suspended, you know, to to be calling someone, you know, telling someone they have Ebola mm, and to go yeah. back to Africa. It should be suspended, not just mm. yeah, you know. And I think it was hard because I already had a stigma at Good Shepherd because of my previous, you know, when I was yes. when I was there the first two mm-hmm. years. I already had the stigma, everyone knew. So people were waiting for it to happen, so I blow off. And I remember this one time when the kid told me I had a bowler, I blew off. Mm. And then I got sent out. But I didn't get suspended. Um, he got spoken to or something. And that was about it. I got spoken to too, but that was about it. Mm. But nothing changed, Leon. Like I was I was told like, you know, I would I might struggle in classes because of my English. And I was like, What? <laughs> like by by whom? By the teachers, Leon. Like teachers would tell me. Um, that you know, you maybe you should do like essentials 
And I was like, essentials? Like, <laughs> what are you on about, man? Like, <laughs> you know, nah. I, yeah, and that's why, and I think I, I had suppressed everything. Everything had been suppressed and I never spoke about anything. Because mm-hmm. at home, when they get phone calls, my dad would be like, what have you done now? And no one would actually go, okay, this is what's happened rather than I'll get in trouble at home. So I never spoke to anyone. And then my brother would call me because obviously my parents have told me what I've done and he would have a go at me, mm. you know, and I think that was him trying to be a good brother and keep me out of trouble, but they didn't see yeah. what I was dealing with. Mm. You know, so for so long, I didn't tell anyone what was going on. Um, and then finally I finished, I finished school. And, but I knew from, I think I was about 14. I knew when I was 14, I wanted to be a lawyer or a police officer. And I was like, I want to work with, you know, human rights and refugee rights and um, stuff like that. And mm. so basically left left um, school and pursued that that career. Because of the stuff people said? Yeah. yeah it, it sort of drove me to make sure that you. no one else, you know, no one else would mm. experience it. Mm. But you went through a bit of a tough tough patch there. If that wasn't, if it wasn't tough enough at school... You, you started uni, and then, and then what happened? It all, it all went downhill. Um, and I think, I think because the thing is, right, what whatever is suppressed has to be expressed in some form. Because mm. I had so much bottled up, and I was, I think I was shaken up. So I started a new job, and everything was going well. And I, it was almost like, you know, when you, you know, when you shake a, a, a coke. And it's, mm. you know, it's, it's strong when it's you're holding it. But it was coming out little by little, like the mm. bubbles yeah, yeah, yeah. were coming out little by little. And I I lost my best friend in March in 2019, so she took her own life. And I Your think best friend? Really, this, this is an Emma, though. No, no, Darwin. Vari. Yeah, Darwin, mm. best friend. Mm. So she was an African, same African descent, and I think she felt the family pressure to be a doctor and to mm. be perfect, and so she took her own life. And I was like, because I've never lost someone close to me. I've lost my cousins. I've lost my family, but they're all back home and I've never had that connection. So when I lost my best friend, I was like, like, okay, what what do I do? Like, I've never seen a counsellor in my whole life. Mm. And I think everything that I had suppressed for like, what would you say, 10 years maybe, um, was finally just being, had come out and I lost. I couldn't focus at work Mm. um, to the point where, I had attempted suicide, tried to take my own life three times um, in that space of six months. So I lost my job. I lost everything. I was in a psych ward. Um, and I generally, like, didn't – I don't know. I didn't see the purpose anymore. And sorry to get emotional. Um, no, no. But, um, yeah, so I was in and out of psych wards and – I generally thought it was over. I was like, there's no way I'm coming back from this. And I remember there was a nurse in the psych ward. She, and she looked at me and she says, Sizzle, one day you're going to change the world. And I looked at her and I said, what do you mean? I'm in a psych ward and I'm on suicide watch. What do you mean one day I'm going to change the world? And I went back to see her when I was a finalist for the Young Achiever Awards this year. And I said, you, you, you know, you said I'll make it. And look, Mm. two years later. But, yeah, before we get there, um, yeah, I lost everything. I hit rock bottom. And after I was in hospital, I lost my job um, that I had within the first six months. And I went, what do I do? Because I've always been able to talk to people and have had people skills. That's how I've always got my jobs, by just speaking. I've never had an interview in my life. So now I had to really – I struggled because I had to apply for jobs and I was rejected from every job. 
I um I was rejected from McDonald's, KFC, like basic jobs that people were getting hired for. That's a blessing in disguise. <laughs> you know, and I was so upset. I was like, what's going on? Like I I was trying to get myself on my feet, but every time I'd get up to apply, because I wanted to work, I wanted to do something. And Leon has firsthand experience with this because all I did at that point, I gave up and I went, let me just play video games. And I sat there and I played Fortnite for 12 hours a day. Ask Leon, he'll tell you. I played Fortnite 12 mm-hmm. hours on the PlayStation. And I, I was like, you know, if I can't find a job, I'll just be a game streamer, you know, just stream yeah. video games. There's a career in that knew, these days. <laughs> yeah, but it's a hard one. <laughs> 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 and I went, I went, there has to be more. I went, if I'm out of hospital and I'm still here, there has to be a reason why I'm here. There had to be a reason. Mm-hmm. So I started soul searching. And because my parents are very um, religious, you know, whereas I respect people's religions, but I'm someone who I don't I don't believe in religion. So I started really soul searching and I try, I had to face myself. I didn't have to face the world. It wasn't about me versus the world. It was me fa- facing me. I was I was a problem and I had to fix I had to fix it. So I really sat down and I was like, what do I want for my life? Where do I want to be? You know. Like with everything that's happened, there has to be a point in our lives where we go, okay, what do I want? Instead of trying to make excuses, all this happened or I was in hospital, I had to go, I need to get back up. So there's a lot of soul searching and like I just realised how powerful the mind is and because your mindset, everything's determined by your mindset. And I really started the mind and I bought, I literally bought a whole book. I have a library over there of books about, you know, Tony Robbins and, you know, the power within. And Mm. I was really into that stuff. And then I realized that the reason why I was stuck was because of the story I was telling myself. I was constantly telling myself I'm not good enough for a job. No one wants to hire me. You know, one day I told myself, well, maybe I'm too expensive for people to pay me. So if you're too expensive, <laughs> what do you do? You start your own business. Yeah. And the way I look at it when it comes to business, I looked at what value can I bring to society? Because I look back and I reflect to when I used to serve in the community because your service and your rewards go hand in hand. So I was like, okay, what value can my business bring? What problem in society can I fix? So I looked at youth crime and being a troubled, you know, young person in my youth, I went, what helped me? And I designed different programs and around that. Um, am I going too far in, Leon? Sorry. No, no. Absolutely not. We want more. Oh, but, yeah, I, I started to design programs around that, around, okay, what's, happen- no, what's happening now with our young people and how can I bring value? How can I make a change in someone's life? So a program I designed in 2020 last year uh, was called Feel Good Sessions. So I connected life skills with sports. So mm. it's about teaching kids that the same emotional management that you need when you're playing soccer or footy or whatever is what you need when you're in a workplace. And um, excuse me. And so I basically I'm contracted by Dondale, City of Palmerston, City of Darwin, the Shack, so to come in and do different programs um, depending on what the need is there. So um, when I was running the session a few weeks ago at Dondale, there was a young fella that said to me when, we were, when I was on the program, he says, look at my control and look at my focus. And I went, oh, like, where else would you need your control and focus? And he goes, when I'm outside and dealing with people. And I go, but where, where, where do you need the focus and control? Because when people make me angry, you know, my control comes in when I need to, you know, manage my emotions. And then that's when we can have those conversations about how, how can we support you out there? Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I, it's, and I think what I've seen, a lot of people see me and think this is all rocket science, but I've just looked at the relationship with these kids. The you know the rapport is everything. 
the rapport with these kids, the, the love that they're seeking for is what they want. So the first session when I went in, they were like, they were not having me. They're like, this is my person coming in. Like they thought I was one of them. They thought I was like going in to join them. And I was like, no. And they, they didn't engage with me at all. And then what I did, instead of engaging, instead of trying to force my program onto them, I engaged with what they were doing. So if they wanted to paint my nails, they, you know, they did that. If they, wanted, if they wanted to kick the footy, I kicked the footy with them. And then that's when I built the rapport. And then when I came in the next, I was like, oh, Miss, what are we doing? I said, we're doing feel-good sessions. And then, yeah, we started doing feel-good sessions. And I said to them, they're like, Miss, is there a reward? And I said, no, no reward because in life there won't be rewards for everything. Yeah, and I don't want right. to teach the idea of you'd be rewarded for a single thing you do, whereas sometimes our job is to just do something, regardless of the reward, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. So you, you, <laughs> so you, you're doing all of this and you, you haven't had any training or any, you know, Degrees. You sound like you've got a master's degree in psychology, you know, like uh, maybe no, you've but she's lived it, mate. She's got the work yeah. experience. I I've, I did my trauma training myself, you know, the um, positive talk training. Yeah. I've done the basic, you know, child protection training stuff with territory families, but I think it's all lived. Sometimes what I find that there's so many people with PhDs and degrees just don't, that don't get it. I go into meetings with people in territory families and they just don't get it. Just yep. don't get it. And I they they look at me and they're like CEOs look at me and they're like, how do you know this? I'm like, I get it. I've been through this, you know, that I, I just see it. I have this way of seeing the pain behind someone, you know, and it's, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I've, like, shifted the tone of the, of the, you know, discussion. But, yeah, I'm still studying, so I study full-time as well. So I'm a law and psychology student. So um, I finish wow. at the end of next year. Is law is law psychology a combination that gets put together very often? No, it's not. But I looked at it and I went, "There's no double degree offered," so I just do my diploma yeah. um, and then finish my uh, my law degree first. So during the year, so right now I've got four exams that start next week or no, yeah. this Friday. And the way I do it is I do my full time um, during the year, so my full eight units for law, and then summer semester comes up, and I will pick up two psychology units and two law units as well. So if I can just smash them out, just wow. just to get it done with, and then hopefully once I finish the law degree, I've already done a year of psychology because of my diploma, and then finish two years and get my bachelor's in psychology as well. Because I think sometimes when we understand, when we look at youth crime, we've got to understand what's going on behind it because the crime we're seeing is the effect that causes all this trauma and all this baggage that has been suppressed, you know. So because mm. I used to act out. I used to act out at school because I was in pain. You know, mm. It's about teaching them how to divert that that energy or or that emotion into something effective that serves them. Yeah. So when you leave uni, <clears throat> you're a psychologist who's really good at arguing things, or you're a lawyer who can read inside the minds of your clients. I think both. <laughs> I like the idea of the first one, though. <laughs> um. So this is this is something that uh, we've touched on a bit in this podcast, and this whole concept of youth crime, this concept of children walking the streets twenty four hours a day, this concept of children who are safer out of their homes than in their homes, um, 
And you mentioned before that you're doing work with with Don Dale and with Palmerston City Council. Um, And we've spoken to other people who are involved in this area as well. Mm. How do we get some results? Because it is out of control as we speak. It is, it is, but it needs to be a collective thing, you know. And I see too many keyboard warriors on Facebook mm-hmm. that type paragraphs but then won't bring value. And I sit there and go, instead of complaining, come up with a solution. If we all came up with one solution, for example, we have the drop in sports, you know, we have Mills on Wheels that comes in and provides the food, you know. If we all came together, but the, the thing is, we've got to deal with the family stuff. You know, and that plays a big part on territory families. Mm. We've really got to deal with the family stuff because they go home, there's domestic violence, Yep. you know, and I can't blame a child for the domestic violence that's happening at home. And I know it's it's hard. We had a young fella break into our place um, last year and he – because he, I could hear the fridge go off, you know, how the fridge rings yeah, 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 yeah. And I was like – I live by myself, like, who's here? Like, yeah. you know, and he was eating grapes in the fridge. And I went and I, and I like, I, when the coppers came, I said, look, don't punish him. Yep. He didn't, you know, I said, don't punish him. But the reason why he's coming here to eat food. Um, I just said, look, just make sure. Did you sure. talk to him at the time? Yeah, I spoke to him. I said, look, and I, the thing is, I'm, I'm a bit different when I talk to young people because I talk like them, like, I'm like, oh, yeah, you yeah. mom, come here. You know, like, yeah. I. Yeah, you know, yeah. catch the lingo, so they, you know, that you would know, have been an me. amazing interaction where that, that young fellow would have broken into any other house in Darwin or Palmerston and probably yeah. either been beaten up or fled yeah. from the scene of the crime. But yeah, I could imagine you would have talked his ear off in a really nice way. Yeah, I would have been like, "What's going on, man?" Like, like I gave him the grapes. If you want yeah, the yeah. grapes, yeah. <laughs> I would, you know, just knock on and the door, mate. Yeah, and he sat down. I was like, "I don't know what to do," and he cried. And I went, "Damn!" Like, if I had someone that I could do that to when I was younger. Like there's that quote that says, be the person you needed when you're younger. And that's mm. what I've done. And I still see him now at Adam, but I was like, oh, miss, you helped me that day. I'm like, that's, it's my job. Yeah. It's, it's not even just about the business. It's not about anything. It's just about being human. Um, and yeah, so it's always, it, it is out of control, um, Peter, but, and it's not an easy fix. With youth crime, let's be no. honest, it will never be a fix. It will never be fixed. There will be another generation that comes in that we've still got. It's just about developing programs that focus on the social and emotional well-being mm. of the child as best as we can. And then what I want to do, the, the aim with the business is to sort of later on hire the young people from Domdale so they yeah. can run the programs in the remote communities for their, their people and they can design their own programs and be that change, you know, because when I, the stories I hear in there, it's like, I want to get out of here, I want to make a difference, but every time I go out, I'm stuck in a cycle. Yeah. You yeah. know. It makes total sense. And, and you you talked about the, you know, the, the terrible family life side of things that, that often results in things such as domestic violence. Uh, how do we fix that? Well, territory families. <laughs> I've got to stop putting them in here, but <laughs> they – they do hold a large with the what they're in charge of housing and communities now. That's under their belt and you know youth affairs. There needs to be more early intervention done, in my opinion. Like for example, look at that child in Tennant Creek who's two, mm. who had to die for yeah. us to do something. Yeah. It shouldn't. It should never get to that point. No. Um, and it's about it's about working because there's a different when we think about culture, the way we deal with parents and down who are going through that whole domestic violence child protection is different to the way we deal with um, indigenous remote communities 
Um, right. Because I've heard a lot of remote communities say that they feel like their kids are being stolen from them. Like they feel like it's another replay of the gener- stolen generation. Whereas there's no communication sometimes between the social worker and the and the parents as to what's going on. There's English barriers, etc. Mm. So I think having better communication to go, this is why I'm removing your child. This is what I think has happened. And look, the young girls that I work with, it's more about teaching them that self-care. So I, I designed a package with them where they put together their own self-care package because a lot of them are looking for love. You know, the stories I hear in there is that they're 14 with a 37-year-old. Yeah. Tells me that's a lot of father issues there. A little yeah. a void that is trying to be filled. So I'm going, okay, instead of seeking love externally, how can I find it from within me? You know, mm. and a lot of these girls, when I sit down with them to do their packages, they're like, Miss, I want to help the next generation of girls. I'm like, yeah, you mob can do that. Like, mm. you mob can do that. So I think it's it's a really, it is a collective thing. It's a collective it is collective, and I hate to use the word collective impact because I've been in so many organisations that do collective impact but get nowhere, but this one yeah. really is, Peter. It can't just be sizzle or, you know, balanced choice um, fixing this youth crime. It needs to be a community thing. Have you ever heard the saying that it takes a village to raise a child? Yep. It's almost like that, mm. you know. Can you give me hope? Is there yes, hope? Yes, I can. There is, Peter. Mm. I'm serious. I know a lot of people laugh at me, but mm. there is. There is. If I could come out what I if I could come out of what I went through, Peter, there's hope. Mm. There's hope. Um, yeah. <laughs> what are you thinking, Leon? Well I, you know. <laughs> I, I I pride myself on being a centrist. <laughs> you know? But sometimes when I listen to this stuff, I find myself sitting on the boundary of the right wing, you know, um, and I just, just, you know, you need a license to drive a car. You need a license for a firearm, you know, but you don't seem to need a license to, to bring kids into this world. Mm-hmm. And I... I just wonder whether a lot of these kids that are there were there because their parents wanted to bring them into the world or whether they're there because they just happen to be a byproduct of something else. Mm-hmm. And that's where I find myself, you know, sitting on a fence uh, out on the boundary uh, rather than being right in the centre where I like to be. And I just, you know, I, I I struggle with that because I think, dude, if you don't know how to raise kids or you don't want kids, don't have them, mm-hmm. right? Don't bring them into this world and make it our problem because that's what it feels like. You know, when you talk about a village and all that sort of stuff, I feel like the village is there absent the parents. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's not right. So, you know, how can we, and, and, you know, you said that this is not going to be the, the, the last generation that faces this way, another generation. Well, we're, you know, why? That's what a lot of people are asking, Sizzle. Mm-hmm. They're, they're asking, why do we have to come together as a society and look after all these children because the parents can't be bothered 
you know, or just are incapable of doing it themselves. Yeah, and that look, and it's frustrating. You know, being a child of social workers, I ask them the same question. <laughs> I do. I'm going to be very honest. It, it is frustrating because um, when we all come together at the table, you don't see the parents. No. You don't. And if I could, I don't know if I, if this would ever happen, but if I could see a way where us youth organisations are working with the kids, where tertiary families is effectively working with the parents, and we do some, we put them together. Do you see where I could see some possibility? But so this is where the right wing part of me comes really comes to the fore, you know, and, and I just feel hey, this is going to sound terrible, but I feel like, you know what? Okay, we will look after these kids, but you go get yourself fixed up because you're not having any more kids for us to look after. This is ridiculous. That's what I feel like needs to happen. No, I, yeah, yeah. No, I 100% agree, Leon. I do. Because, for example, it's like, okay, let's look at it in a business term. Right? For, for me to hire someone in the business, I need to be right myself because without the foundation, everything will stumble, right? And it's the same with parenting, right? So I 100% agree where there should be a point where these parents, you know, if, if the child's been removed, they get trained and they get support. And, you know, if people want to culturally, um, if, it, if they want it done culturally, it's done like that. But what seems to happen is that the kids are removed and the parents just do what they want. Mm. That's what I'm seeing. Mm. Um, but then that comes down and, to... And like that's if, where you get the keyboard warriors going nuts for good reason, Sizzle. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's hard enough that you've got to have people like you and Balanced Choice and other people getting in there and territory families, for that matter, to sort this out. Yeah. Only to have more kids being produced by the very same parents that have absolved themselves of any responsibility. Yeah. Now, yeah. I, I hope I'm wrong about that, but I just don't feel like I am. Yeah, now, you're right, Leon, and. Uh I was only having this conversation today and my final words at the end, end of the conversation were, under a government that I lead, <laughs> licensing parents will be mandatory. Anyway, we're, perhaps we're heading towards that, that, that cycle because, you know, like you said, it can't go on. You know, the amount of resources you know, and every government is under fire. You look at what's going on with the CLP and the ALP right now. They're both fighting over bail laws, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and we all know that locking children up is not the right answer. But, you know, when there's just rampant crime yeah. and, you know, it becomes front and centre news down south uh, because of what's going on in Alice Springs, of course yeah. something's going to give. Of course, yeah. Labor is going to start having to backtrack because they know they're just going to be completely trashed at the next election over crime. The only reason that didn't happen last year was because of COVID. So, you know, I mean, Chris Walsh makes a very good point, and he said that, you know, both sides of politics have got to come together and agree on a way forward and agree on, on some bipartisanship about this and don't play with the bail laws like some sort of political yes. football. We've seen it. Yes. You know, we yes. saw what happened with, yes. with uh, the last CLP government and Don Dale. I mean, four corners plastered all over the national news uh, and the complete knee-jerk reaction from Malcolm mm -hmm. Turnbull and the, and the uh, Royal Commission. 
only to come out and make recommendations that every other uh, commission has made, uh, you know, in, in the previous 10 to 20 years mm. for the price tag of 70-odd million dollars, which could have been used to, to actually do something as opposed to spent on lawyers and, and, and other things. So uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's quite frustrating and, uh, you know, uh, the, the answer is there, but, gosh, you're going to have to you break a lot of eggs to implement <laughs> those answers. <laughs> Trust me, Leon, and especially being so young, you know, it's not until I finish talking after meeting and people go, what the hell, she knows this thing or two, you know? Like, mm. And I just, and I see it, it's a, youth crime is used as a political game, Leon. It's always, let's be honest here. It is. You know, whereas why can't we just both come together? And I know we're not the same parties, whatever, but we're dealing with the future of tomorrow. Why can't we just put politics aside and just go, look, let's come together and come up with a solution? Mm -hmm. You know, because what I see at the moment on social media is is someone barking at the other party and the other party. But are we we high schoolers? Pretty much, yeah. That's how it is at the moment. And... At the, like, you know, we're, I'm, I'm the chair of the roundtable this year, you know, for the 2021 Youth Roundtable, and I, there's a few ideas that, we've, you know, we've got to do a community-based action project, and there's a few things that I'm trying to implement that, are, you know, around youth crime, which I can't disclose such, you know, at such time, but mm. um, it's just, it just can't be one person. True. So, because someone made a joke to me and said, "Sizzle, you might you should go to Alice Springs and fix Alice Springs." And it's not Sizzle fixing Alice Springs. <laughs> it just can't be yeah. Sizzle or Fiona support going down there to fix Alice. It's it's more than that, and that like, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So it's incredible, Sizzle, that you've managed to turn your life around in such a short period of time. I mean, most people would take years to recover from from what you've been through particularly, you know, talking about suicide and, and you know, ending up in a psychiatric ward. I mean, those sort of things take years sometimes. Yeah, they do, you know. Mm. But I just, I was desperate, Leon, I was desperate for some sort of change in my life. Mm. And when I think I was just, I was really pulled by that desperation to just seek answers and find out ways to do things differently and understand me. You know, I had to, I really had to face myself. You know, people think you're versing the world or you're versing other people, whereas you're not, you're versing yourself. It's you versus you. Mm. You know, and it's about allowing yourself to actually not be perfect. Because I had to allow myself to be vulnerable and, and not be perfect and really go, who am I? You know, and I had to stop making excuses for myself and blaming circumstances and blaming my parents and blaming my past as to why I was here. And I had to, I had to take responsibility and go. And that's the thing: people are not ready to take responsibility. No one's ready to take responsibility for anything. So, talk to me about this, right? As a as a parent, um, I look at the pressure that my kids are under, and it's natural to compare that to the pressure that I felt I was under at that same age. Mm-hmm. And most parents that I talk to in, in, in my co- cohort, uh, you know, are just puzzled. And we think, you know, kids these days are just not resilient. What's wrong with them? Like, 
we went through the same sort of pressure. You know, we don't know anybody that was, you know, um, trying to kill themselves or, you know, if they were, I mean, I can't remember to tell you the honest truth. I can't, but I do know what it was like being in year 12, the pressure, the stress of, you know, doing well to go to university and all those sort of things and the expectations of your parents, particularly migrant parents uh, who are, you know, uh, expectations are on steroids. Um, But, you, you know, you sort of feel like, okay, well, yeah, I know. I remember it was tough. We went through it, we got through it, so did my brother, so did my sister. What's the big deal? Yeah. What is it about kids these days? I wouldn't Being with me, because my parents would say the same thing as you. Like before mm. all of this happened with my life, they would have said that they would have agreed with me 100%. And I just feel like I had to be on, I had to go through that. I had to go, I had to go through that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be the person I am now without it. You know, sometimes... And I know as hard as it sounds, but the best thing people did was to let me go through that. That was the best thing people did for me because now I'm more resilient, Leon, when things go downhill. I'm more resilient when things in business doesn't happen. Whereas before, if I was running a business and something went wrong, Leon, I would quit the whole business. And I don't know what it is. I don't know why I didn't have these skills. Maybe sometimes, look, you guys weren't given what we were given. We're babied. Let's be honest, Leon. We're baby. Look at the houses we live in. Look at the laptops we, we have, the cars we drive. We're babied, and that's the reality of it. That my parents would never have an iPhone at the age of twenty. Hmm. Yeah, like I got my first phone when I was twelve. I think it's the whole fact that we we are babied, and that's that, and that's not to put the blame on parents or anything. That's just how you guys, are, you know, just you've you've done it to give us a better life. But then we've sort of laid back and go, oh, don't have to work. Like don't have to, you know, stress too much. The stress, the struggle my parents went through to get where they are now. It's something that I probably, before I went through what I went through, I couldn't have comprehended. I couldn't have gone through it. But because I went through that hardship myself, I can, I'm not saying it's easier to take on hardship, but it's more, I'm more resilient because of it. So I think part of it is that we are babied sometimes. You know, Liam, imagine I fly to England every two years. I go to America, like I travel the world, you know, I've got a British passport. I can enter whatever, you know, it's, it's not hard for me. So when I went through hardship, I went, oh shit, like I've got to, I've actually got to face this. You know, I can't just book a flight. And, but because I went through all that hardship and people let me, as much as it was, it was hard watching my parents, you know, like it was hard for my parents watching me go through. It's the hardest thing watching a child suffer. And I saw mm. it firsthand for my parents. Even though they didn't cry in front of me, I just knew. I just knew that my mum was in pain. Mm. But, the best thing she did was to let me go through and let me grow as a person, you know. And I know it's hard here; it's hard to hear that as a parent because you guys want to protect us from everything. And well, not really. I mean, I, I certainly, you know, I want to protect you from harming yourselves, yeah. but I, I don't want to protect you from from life and from yeah. you know what what it's really like out there. Mm. That, that's the part I'm having real difficulty with, the, the, the issue of, of resilience. The, I, I'm not, I don't understand why it's, it seems to be harder for kids these days to build that resilience than, than it, it was for us. And, and maybe I've got a huge blind spot there that I'm not aware of. I don't know. But I would say social media, right, like, you go on social media, you're feeling depressed. You have 50,000 things that are validating your feelings. Let's yeah, be honest here. Right. You've got 50,000 things, Leon. You've got 
depression quotes that people make for you, for people who are depressed. Mm-hmm. So you go on there, you're depressed, you're going to look at depression quotes. What does that do? Validate. You feel, yeah. oh, yeah, you know. And the more you validate and dwell in that, in because what you dwell on mentally is what you dwell in. And I used you know, I'm, <laughs> I remember doing this. I used to, it's, it's almost self-sabotage sometimes. And I used to do a lot of self-sabotage where I would, I would dwell on it and it would magnify and not sit in it and then cry over it. You know, and it's it's harsh to say, and I, I, you know, it's really harsh to say, but I say from religious spirits that we we have to, there has to be a point, there has to be a point on where we go, what do I want for my life? I had mm. to make that call. I had to make that call. I had to step back and look at my life and go, this is how I want to spend the rest of my life, playing video games, Leon. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> like nothing wrong with video games at all, but I just knew I was I was born for something more. I went, there has to be more in me. And that's when I had to, it comes down to the individual. It does, Leon. It really does. Mm-hmm. Well, Sizzle, I have to say that conversation was as interesting as I was expecting it to be. <laughs> and uh, you've done really well, Sizzle. Like I'm really impressed at how much Thank you've you. achieved in such a short period of time. Thank you. Because the last time I saw you, you were definitely not in a good way. Yeah. I was only two years ago too, hey? Oh, wow. it's not that long ago. Not that long ago. Wow. Yeah, thank you so much. Pete, any questions? <laughs> no questions. I, I'm, I'm just been sitting here for the last five or ten minutes or so and just listening to the um, – that little flex of British accent, wondering whether I should be scared. It sounded like it was in some sort of British gangster movie from time to time. But the uh, the conversation being as pure as it was, I didn't want to jump in with anything, any silliness like that. No, but uh, Sizzle, um, thanks for your story. And uh, I know you apologised a few times in there for it, but please don't because, you know, we can all sit there and talk about the roses and how the whole world's fluffy, but the whole world isn't fluffy and there's a lot of bad stuff happening in our part of the world at the moment. We're not talking about COVID and stuff like that, but the things that you've touched on and um, I'm constantly looking for any shining light to tell me that this is going to get turned around at some point. So the, the conversation is much appreciated and, uh, it's been awesome to hear your story. And good on you Thank for, you. Uh, you know, having the internal fortitude to uh, to get yourself out of the, the woes that you had. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you for having me on, Peter and Leon. You're welcome. Now, at this point, I meant to say that was, but I know I'm going to stuff up the name. I'm going to try my best. That was Sizzle Fiana on the Territory Story yeah. podcast. Did I get it? Yeah, you did. Perfect. Awesome. We'll catch you again next time. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Territory Story podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story podcast on all leading podcasting platforms or go to territorystory.com. The Territory Story Podcast. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.